0: You know, Wedding proposals are becoming an art form and how to do them in unique and memorable ways. Um, Lauren found a few interesting ones for me this past week. Uh, one couple felt it was appropriate to... Uh, the man proposed to the woman at 20,000 feet and then both went right outside of the plane. And uh, that for them was memorable. Another man um, who I guess was very much on fire for his wife... Uh, donned a fire retardant suit, coated himself in gasoline, lit himself on fire, ran off the platform, landed in a pool, and, uh, and got out and proposed to his wife because he was on fire for her. And uh, they're maybe memorable, stupid, you know, you can, the way you view them, but, but what we have here in our text today in terms of a marriage proposal is also radically unusual, but, but so deep and glorious. The it's such an intriguing proposal by a woman to a man. Now let me remind you where we are in this passage. Here we're in Ruth chapter three. If you remember chapter one, it was a time of dark providence. Uh, Naomi and Elimelech, her husband and her two sons, left Israel, Bethlehem, and went to. Uh, Moab, a country to the east, in a time of famine. They were looking for food. They were looking for relief. And then once they were over there, tragedy struck. Elimelech died, the husband. So now she's a widow. She has two sons. They marry Moabite women. And you know what you think of a Moabite, right? You think of disaster, trouble. They marry Moabite women. And uh, then the sons die one after the other. So here is Naomi. She is now a widow with two daughter-in-laws who are also widows and no heirs. Now there's a little glimmer of light in the sense that she has heard that God has lifted the famine in Israel, and so they begin the journey back. Um, And on the journey back, that's where Ruth affirms, your people are my people, and your land is my land, and your God is my God. Chapter 2 picks up a little brighter. In chapter 2, uh, Ruth is putting herself under the wings of God. That's, what, that's how Boaz, you know, Boaz, we're introduced to him. Boaz says that you have found shelter and refuge under the wings of God. She did. She was a, a faithful woman. And you saw God reward that faith by leading her to the field of Boaz. Boaz was a relative, and he was able to provide for them. And when that happened, you saw God kind of resurrect Naomi's faith. She was falling into darkness and bitterness. But then she says that um, may God be blessed in his kindness. He has not forsaken the dead or the living. So you kind of see God rebuilding his people. Now, while they were provided with food, There was more redemption that was needed for Ruth. And that's why at the end of chapter 2, it kind of leaves us hanging with, and Ruth lived with her mother-in-law. That's what it was. But there's more that needs to be done. So now we come to chapter 3, where there is a proposal in the mix, where um, where Naomi is going to be moving towards caring for Ruth. It's a great expression of love it's It's an interesting story. It's an intriguing story. It's filled with innuendo. Now, poorly understood, it seems seductive and manipulative, rightly understood. It seems gracious and kind. We're going to look at these three characters, and I'm just going to roll through the story after Jennifer reads it. I'm going to roll through the story to explain it because of its confusion. And then I want to try to apply it to us around these themes of faith, hope, and love because I think we see those things in these characters.
1: Ruth chapter 3. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whom young women, with whom young, his young women you were? Yet there is a Redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight, and in the morning, if he will redeem you good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today.
0: So, you kind of have in the first five verses, there's this plan that is being hatched, kind of a a plan that's being made. You know, they do say that it only takes two for a marriage, right? One, a single daughter, and then two, an anxious mother. That's all it takes. And, uh, and, and you see this anxious, I don't say that Naomi is actually anxious, I'm going to argue that she's faithful. Listen to what she says, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you. You see Naomi turning a corner, she's not concerned with herself, she's concerned with Ruth, she wants rest for Ruth. And that word for rest is really a place of rest, specifically a home a home with a husband where there's protection, there's provision, there's a covenantal love, that she wants it well with her. In other words, she wants the widowhood removed. In other words, she is not satisfied that they're back in Bethlehem and Ruth can now work in the fields. She wants Ruth to have a, a home where she is loved and honored. And, and remember this, if in chapter 1, this was the prayer of Naomi. Do you remember when they were about to part company? Here's what Naomi prayed. She says, May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. So Naomi is speaking to her two daughter-in-laws who were widows at the time. She says, May the Lord grant you that you might find rest and each of you in the house of her husband. So what Naomi's doing is she's actually walking out the prayer that she had made. She's seeking rest. So here's the plan. Now, this is obviously a different kind of plan. This isn't how Americans date this idea of, okay, you're going you're gonna to take a bath, and you're going to put on perfume and put on a cloak and then go to the threshing floor and kind of uncover his feet and then lay down, and then when he wakes up, you're going to wait, and he's going to tell you what to do, and that's how it's all going to go down. That's, it's crazy to me when you read that, right? Well, let me try to explain some of the details here you know the idea of taking a bath that shouldn't surprise us if she's working in the field all day let's let her have a bath that's a good thing the the idea of perfume it wasn't like that it wasn't like Chanel number no. 5 behind your earlobe <clears throat> it was a scented olive oil in a time where deodorant wasn't there so it, it's it's just Probably to knock down the other smells as well. This idea of a cloak, some of your translations have a new or your best dress. That isn't the case. It's an outer garment. Be like a shawl to kind of keep the chill of the night air out. And so once she gets prepared, she's supposed to go to the threshing floor. Threshing floor is an area usually elevated with a hard surface where they would knock down the crops to break it up, loosen it, and then they would winnow it. So they would take a fork and they'd throw it in the air, so that the kernels or the grain, which are heavier, would fall to the ground and the chaff would blow away. That's why it's done in evening. Oftentimes in evening, the breezes were more steady and cooler as opposed to the hot, gusty winds of the afternoon that could blow both kernel and chaff away. And the seed would fall to the ground, and it would be a hard surface, which makes it easier to kind of gather. So she would go down to this threshing floor, <clears throat> and then she would mark where Boaz would, was going to lie down, and then she would uncover his feet. But she would wait till they had eaten, and they had had their fill, and his heart was merry. Now, when you hear his heart was merry, our first thought is he's plastered, he's drunk, he's tired, whatever. That's not so. The word for merry means contentment or satisfaction. He's worked hard. He's had a good meal. He may have had wine. But he's had a good meal and he's just resting. And remember now, they've just come out of a famine. So I bet you that was a good meal. And there'd be a sense of merriment now that we have food again. Now, when you look at the story, and let's just look at the plan because that's where the plan stops. You know, they kind of baked this plan in the house that they were staying in. It it can be, some people want to write it off, and some authors take it as a real. Manipulative, seductive kind of move, you know, trying to take advantage of an older man. And, and it is true that oftentimes in the threshing of grain, when the piles were high, the prostitutes would go out there and they would try to conduct their business because the grain was right there. And that is true, but I don't think you see that in this text. You, you, we've seen the character of Boaz. We've seen the character of Ruth. They're not that way at all. That would, that would be like an importing into the text, some modern reading of it. I mean, th- there, is a, there is a deep passion. Now, now you do wonder, well, why all the stuff, you know, getting dressed and all that stuff and going out there? Well, I think there's a reason for it. Remember now, Boaz is a godly man And Ruth is a woman in mourning. And to bathe and to put on perfume and to put on an outer garment was kind of like telling Boaz, my time of mourning is over. Now, I'm not just making this up. You see the exact same thing when David lost his son and the period of mourning was over, recorded in 2 Chronicles 12, it says he got up, he took a bath, He put on perfume, he put on a cloak, and he went to worship. The same scenario seems to indicate that now the period of mourning is over. In other words, Ruth is holding herself out as eligible. That's what she's doing in this. Okay, so what happens? Well, in 6 to 15... Here's where the plan is implemented. And she goes to the threshing floor. She marks where he lays down. That's a good thing. If it's dark, you can't see, and you start uncovering feet, you want to make sure you uncover the right feet. And so she marks where he lays down. She goes up. He's asleep, uncovers his feet, lies down at his feet. Uh, This is a real sign of humility. Um, Then, of course, it says that he's startled, probably because the cool air woke him up with his feet being exposed. That's probably why she uncovered the feet, so that he would wake up. And then he wakes up and he is startled by the fact that a woman is there. Now you can see Boaz's response. Who are you? He doesn't expect this. He doesn't know it. Can you imagine the fear and uncertainty in Ruth? I mean, this takes faith to believe that God would be leading you to do this. And so she, he wakes up. Who are you? And listen to what she says. She says, I am Ruth, your servant. She puts the attention back on him. Now, she is walking out great humility. First being at the feet of a person is pretty significant. But then I am your servant. In other words, she's humbling herself before him. But then she leaves the playbook that Naomi gave her, and she says, spread your wings over me. Now, Again, a lot of people can see a lot of innuendo in that, but remember chapter 2. Boaz had credited her for coming under God's wing to find refuge. Some of your Bibles have garment. The word for garment and the word for wing is the same. So she's saying, spread your protection over me. Bring me into your home. Marry me. Be a protector and a provider for me. She's proposing to him she's asking for him to marry her to be a redeemer in her life in fact you see kind of similar language and god speaks to his own people in ezekiel 16:80 says when i passed by you again and saw you behold you are the age for love so it's kind of picturing a marital scene here and i spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord, and you became mine. You see this rich, matrimonial love, commitment, language. Spread your wings over me. And then she explains why she's so direct. She says, for you're a redeemer. You're a redeemer. You're the one that is to redeem me. In other words, she's calling Boaz to walk out the obligations of the scriptures. You're a redeemer. Now, remember what we spoke about, redeemer, last week. Remember, in Israel, this idea of redemption was played out in a number of contexts. One, so if you're a family member within within a clan or within a family, and a family member has poor investments or gets into super-duper debt and he's got to sell his land to get out of debt, that would produce a cycle of poverty that was destructive. If you didn't have land, you're always beholden to somebody and, and always subject to financial abuse. And so the law of redemption in Leviticus 25 was that someone in the family who had their wherewithal would redeem the land, would buy back the land and establish the person so that they're not walking in cycles of poverty. And this would also be the law of redemption for slavery. Some people would sometimes sell themselves into slavery to get out of a debt. And then the redeemer of the family would come and buy the person back, purchase them, and bring them back to freedom. Well, there is another law of redemption, and that is in terms of marriage. It was called a leveret marriage. It's found in Deuteronomy 25. And this is where I explained last week, where if a husband and wife are married, they have no children, the husband dies, then God stated that the brother of the husband would marry the woman, protect the woman, provide for the woman, bring up a child in the name of the deceased. And it says in Deuteronomy 25, 6, so that his name is not blotted out. It was important for the line of the family to continue. Now, again, this is God's spreading wings A woman, widow, subject to abuse? No, not in God's economy. There'll be protection and provision for her. So what what Ruth, you know, Ruth is a widow. She is childless, and she is making a legal appeal to say, you're a redeemer. Now remember, Ruth's husband died. Ruth's husband's brother died. Ruth's father-in-law died. And so Boaz was a relative to her probably a cousin of Elimelech, her father-in-law. And so she's making his she's making her appeal to him. And then him moving toward her will be to walk out the provision that God gave and was to walk out to be a god to her, or at least an image of God. Okay, so that's the scene. Now, the, the story's building tension now because the question is, she's just put all of her cards on the table. What's going to happen? What's he going to say? I mean, this is where the tension, you're like, what's he going to do? Is he going to cast her out as a woman of the night? What are you doing sneaking up on me like this? Or is he going to move towards her with some sexual aggression, thinking that she's asking for more than she's just stated? What's going to happen? Well, then you hear out of Boaz's mouth that tension is relieved as he says, may you be blessed of God. He blesses her in God's name. He blesses her for her kindness. It's that same kindness we spoke about last week, that her kindness is even greater now than the first kindness. Remember remember in chapter 2, he blessed her for her kindness because she stuck with Naomi. She stayed in a covenant relationship with God even though dark times had come upon her. This Ruth is a superstar, and so is he. And he's blessing her because now she's showing a greater kindness she is linking herself up with Boaz, a man probably twice her age. She's not going after the younger, the more handsome, higher potential. She's going with him. Why? Because he's a redeemer. Because God has appointed him. In other words, this is is as much about her faith in God as it is as her need for protection. God has provided for her a redeemer, and that's the one I want. I don't want another one even though he may be twice my age, even though the the future of our life may be short because of his age, I'm going with the Redeemer that God has given to me. And he sees that as kindness. But he doesn't just bless her, he promises to her. He promises to her, I will do what you ask. See, she's asking. I will do it. Absolutely, I'll do it. And then he assures her, he says, as surely as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Boy, that is... That's high and lofty language. I mean, this is not some seedy, sordid, steamy love romance. This is two people under God's authority seeking the best, trying to walk out faithfulness at its best in a deep love. Remember now, she had been harvesting out there for months. They had gotten to know each other. This is a beautiful scene here. Now, of course, tension enters as he says, I'm not your nearest redeemer. So again you're like, "Oh no, another another problem. I'm not your nearest redeemer." And and he says, "He lets her know that. He's upfront clear." I, and I love the honesty. If he had a passion for her, he could have said, "You know what? Nobody'll have to know. We'll just get married." He he walks in line with God's word. He's trusting himself to God that if this is of God, it will go. So he says, "Stay here for the night." She lays down at his feet. She's not moving towards him. She's laying at his feet. I can't imagine they slept much that night. Uh, But she lays at his feet and he says, get up before it's dark. Why? Is he trying to be deceptive? No, I think he's trying to protect her honor. You know, people do talk and people do imply things about what they see, even though they don't know the whole story. And so he gives her those six measures. It's interesting, too. He gives her six measures. There is no Hebrew word for measurement. Some of your Bibles have ephah. You know, which is about 30 pounds. Now, unless she was some bionic woman, I don't think she was hauling about 180 to 250 pounds of grain back. Um, So I don't think, it's just unstated. It could be a Sia or an Omar. We don't know. I don't think the amount is the issue. I think what it is, is it's a commitment to keep his covenant. It's kind of like an engagement ring you can eat, is what it would be. (laughs) He's letting her know, I am committed to you, and I want you to take it back. And what's interesting is he gives her six, not seven. Now, you know, next chapter, they're going to, when, when great stuff happens, I don't want to spoil chapter four, but they're going to talk about seven as a means of blessing. Why six? Well, six is incomplete. The sixth day it had to be a seventh day. And I think he's giving her six because it's not yet complete. There's still one step not just food, not just family, but there will be an heir, even in the seed given, and the seed of the man that will bring the heir. So there's, the, the, the writer's doing a lot of great work here in terms of keeping us on edge. Now, when she leaves with her grain and she goes and talks to her mother-in-law, the mother-in-law says, how did it go for you? I'm sure she was pacing back and forth all night long, wondering how to go, how to go, because it was very dangerous. I want you to know the risk involved that was... It was embraced doing this. And of course Naomi or Ruth tells her everything that happened. But what she said was this. At the end, she says, um, let's see here. Oh yeah, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Do you remember in chapter 121 about Naomi griping comp- not griping. She was under duress. For the hand of God was strong. And she said, I left full, I came back empty. Now God's filling her back up. He's filling her up with food, and now he's filling her with the joy knowing that Ruth's widowhood is going to be removed. And so Naomi, in faith, in a rescued, a resurrected faith, says, let's wait here, let's wait He will not let the matter, he will not rest until the matter is settled today. And so, of course, that's where it leaves us. So chapter one, we're left with, they're coming back, it's harvest time, what's going to happen? Chapter two, we're left with, she's staying with her mother-in-law, but we don't know what's going to happen. In chapter three, we're left with, let's wait here, he'll settle the matter today. So you see the tension kind of build. Now, let me try to uh, apply that to us. And when we look at this narrative here, You know, God is in the background, as I tried to explain. He's kind of moving and shaking, how we saw in chapter 2 how she just happened to the field. In other words, God's sovereignly directing this, but he does it through the ordinary ways uh, in their lives. And so a couple of things I want you to think about. Faith, hope, and love. I I want you just to look with me at Naomi for a second, because I think she's a model of, of active faith. You know Whether you're a Christian here or not, uh, faith uh, is not a passive thing. Faith it is, is active, it's vibrant, it moves. For faith to be real, it is always moving. In other words, faith in God as sovereignly good will always be moving towards achieving something good. So you have Naomi here. She's actively moving towards providing rest for Ruth. She's providing wellness for her. So she is trying to do good for another. That's what faith does. Faith in God has to reveal itself in the good things, the acts of kindness that we do for other people. Uh, Listen to what Martin Luther said about faith. He says, faith is living, it's bold, trust in God's grace, so certain of God's favor that it would risk death a thousand times trusting it. Just hold what your understanding of faith is to his definition. Let me repeat it again. Faith is a living, bold trust in God's grace, so certain of God's favor that it would risk death a thousand times trusting it. He said, oh, it's living, it's busy, active, it's a mighty thing, faith. And so it's impossible for it not to do good works incessantly. It doesn't ask whether there are good works to do. But before the question rises, it has already done them. It's always at the doing of them. In other words, he's saying this, that we haven't, when we have a true faith in the sovereign goodness of God, the kind of God that we've just read about, that, that it has to be revealed, it has to be moving in good works. In other words, it's your belief in his goodness that is what propels us to be willing to sacrifice, or as Luther said, to be willing to risk our lives a thousand times over. Because he's so good, because he's so sovereign, because he's so in control of his universe, yes, we can throw ourselves at the good, at doing good for others. And so when you look at your faith, what is revealed in terms of the works or the acts of kindness or the sacrifices that you embrace for people? I mean, start in the concentric circle of your own marriage or your own family your own church, your own community. I mean, how is faith being meted out through the way that you bring kindness to others? Remember last week I shared about how love and kindness is dominant through this book? And what I mean by love and kindness is you're willing to do work. You're willing to do an act of grace for people without any expectation of return. There's no quid pro quo in your mind when you do it. You see a need and you move. And last week I challenged you. Look at two people. Just look at find two people who have needs and what can you do to move toward them with kindness? Did you do that? Because faith is revealed through our trust in a sovereign God that motivates us to do sacrificial good. That's why Naomi has come back, instead of at the end of chapter 1, which she was actually kind of self-absorbed, in her own struggle for faith, that's what, you know, when you're faithless, you're disengaged and you're moving towards disrepair and despair. But but here you have now, she's moving with grace for the betterment of another. So that's faith in Naomi. Hold yourself up. Is that what you see? You know, James one twenty seven. we see that religion that's pure um, cares for the orphans and the widows. Well, if you think about it, Ruth is kind of both an orphan and a widow. She was a widow, her husband died, and she was kind of a voluntary orphan in the sense that she left her family to come live among the people of God. So, so ask yourself, how is my faith being demonstrated? If you, don't, if you can't answer it, and I wouldn't just say stop with asking yourself, because we, we tend to grade ourselves on the curve, but ask your spouse, ask a friend. Say, where do you see faith evidenced in me? Where do you see my faith revealed in acts of kindness? Do you see me sacrificing myself? Folks, we want to do this kind of introspective work so that we can find where we are. God, give mercy to us. If you're convicted by this, well, then thank God for the conviction because the conviction is supposed to lead you to God for grace. God, help me to be more kind. I think in the first 20 years of ministry, I prayed every night, give me compassion for people. I know I should keep praying for that, and I do. But I did, I did, give me compassion. I don't have a natural compassion. God, give me compassion. So, so let this introspection reveal areas that you can go to God and you can ask him for this. Remember what Jesus said um, when we were back in Matthew 20. He says, what do you want me to do for you? He said it to the blind man. What do you want me to do? Envision Jesus, what do you want me to do for you? I, I want more compassion. I want to be able to extend myself in greater measure to those who are suffering. I want to give greater kindness to people. I want to have the eyes to see those who I need to minister to. It might be refugees. It might be teaching kids. It might be helping a neighbor. I don't know how it's going to look in your life. Now, that's your job to go back and figure out how is my faith going to be revealed by the good works that I do, fueled by faith. So if you're just doing good works to be liked or because they need to have it done, that's not what I'm speaking about. I mean, you're looking at God, and you're saying, because God is God and he's great and he's mighty, I'm going to do this work. Okay, the second thing I would ask you to consider is this hope. Faith, hope, and love. Hope, you see that in Ruth. I, I think there's a deep hope in Ruth. Hope No. Oh, excuse me, I'm going to call her Hope. Ruth knows she has no position, she has no priority, she is powerless. And so she is simply hoping in Boaz as a redeemer. She's not manipulating. She's not circumventing. She's not trying to take matters. She is hoping, you are my redeemer. So all of her hope is linked in Boaz. Now let me remind you of a story back in Genesis 19, because this is kind of interesting parallel. So Ruth is from the line of the Moabites. And if you remember the origin of the Moabites in Genesis 19... There was Lot and his wife and his two daughters, and they lived in Sodom and Gomorrah. And remember, the angels came and warned them that, listen, God's going to bring judgment against the city because the sin is so great. And so come out of the city. Well, the husbands of the two women didn't go, and Lot's wife, halfway out, turns back and returns. So the only three that made it out of Sodom and Gomorrah are Lot and his two daughters. Now things weren't looking for those two. were not looking good for those two daughters. They had no husband, they had no heir. Eerily, the same as Ruth. And so what they did was they took matters in their own hands, and they got their father drunk. And one daughter slept with him, was impregnated. The next daughter, the next night, got him drunk, slept with him. They had an heir, and the son of the first daughter' name was. Moab. And he was the father of the Moabites. And here you have Ruth, a Moabitess, who doesn't do that. She is hoping in her Redeemer alone. The beautiful, I mean, I mean, talk about a stark comparison about all these women who are in the same situation. The two did it their way. And yet Ruth just hopes in God. There's this deep hope in him. And, and, and what we see here in Ruth, we don't just see a hope for redemption we see that in Ruth, redemption is offered to all of us. I mean, Ruth is a widow. She's a woman. I mean, she is a foreigner. She's a Moabite. And yet God still moves to save her. In other words, in this passage, we're just reminded, can you believe there is no one in this room that could claim, I can't be saved by God, that that I can't hope for redemption. There is no person who has sinned so great, fallen so far, that God's not able, his redeeming love through Christ is so great to save. But in Ruth, we also see this picture of waiting for redemption. Here she is at the end of the story. What's she doing? She's waiting for her Redeemer to come. And I was thinking about that. She's just waiting. She doesn't know how it's going to go, but she is trusting in her Redeemer explicitly to come. And, you know, as a church, how do we look for our Redeemer? To come, I mean, how do we look for Christ to come back? I mean, many of us we try to look at the faith and we pray and we look for deliverance over this problem and that problem, and most of our lives are spent only looking to a week or a month or a year or maybe twenty years ahead. But are we looking to Christ for redemption? I was thinking about the nature of redemption, even because Naomi's or sorry, Ruth's redemption was going to be food, it was going to be family, and then there's going to be an heir. But, but Ruth knew that redemption had to be more than just those physical, temporal things. Ruth lived in the time of judges where things were just in rotten shape. There was political chaos, there was social upheaval, there was a spiritual vacuum. And so Ruth would have seen in Boaz a Redeemer, but it was pointing to a Redeemer to come, where finally we would be drawn out. The Christian here, when we look for redemption, I don't want you thinking simply, I won't, I'll pass the door to hell and I'll go to heaven. When we speak about the Christian being redeemed fully in Christ, that means that if you're a Christian here, you're going to be made absolutely new. Remember all the miracles that we've studied in the book of Matthew? They're all, you know, the, the one that can't hear, hears. The one that can't walk, walks. The one who can't see, sees. The one that's sick, made healthy. Everything is towards perfection in redemption. So for the Christian, when we think about Christ's coming, it's not simply to deliver us from hell or to deliver us from some tribulation, whatever that's going to be. It's He's going to make us in perfect form. We will be as we were intended to be. We will be fully human as Jesus is fully human perfect in every way, having a perfect communion with God. So that's the draw. That's what we're waiting for. As Peter says, set your hope fully on the kindness that will be revealed to us at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And set your hope fully. So for the Christian here, we're thinking fully, am I thinking about his return, not for my deliverance of temporal trials, although that is to be enjoyed, but it's to be fully made in the image of God. I will be fully imaging God in perfection. That's what we have. So as our bodies age and our minds grow tired and our bodies weaken, it's only moving toward that for the Christian, not for the non-Christian, but for the Christian. Think about what Paul writes in Romans 8. He says, And not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions as sons, the redemptions of our body. Think about it. That is to occupy the mind. We see just a faint picture of that as Ruth waits. Okay, so faith, hope. Last one is love. I think when we look at Boaz, we think of this love. I mean, think about Boaz. I mean, Boaz is a superstar. He He is providing for them. He is protecting them all the time. He said, stay in this field. Don't move to this field. Work behind these women. I've told my men not. I mean, he is just a consummate godly gentleman. A- and he is providing, he's protecting, but he's pure. He's pure, I- even not taking advantage of Ruth. she would have been an easy target to take advantage of. His power, his position, his ownership of the land. There's no, there's no sense of wickedness in him. And so when she sees him, she sees a beautiful redeemer. But when we look at him, we realize that he can't fully redeem. But when, you're, when you look at Boaz, you're drawn to him. You think he would be a man's man. He would be a godly man. He would be somebody I'm just naturally drawn to because of his character and the quality of his person. And yet he is just to whet your appetite for the redeemer that is to come. I mean, he's wetting your appetite. He's preparing. He's one along a chain of these types of Christ that is setting everything up for the arrival of Jesus Christ. And that's why when we read Matthew one five, Boaz is in the line of Christ the Redeemer. And when you think about Christ as a the Redeemer, then you just take you take Boaz and you just don't put it to a a, a factor of a hundred. I mean, Jesus Christ has fully redeemed and think about what he did in redeeming us he took upon himself our sin and our shame and our guilt and he took upon himself the very curse of god so remember now the problems in judges is due to the curse that men and women have fallen away from god i mean we Let's not be surprised over ISIS. Let's not be surprised over the deterioration of a culture. That's that's to be expected when a world is trying to exist apart from God. I mean, it's to be expected. We're We're trying to live apart from a creator who gives us life. I mean, it's like a chicken with its head cut off. If you've ever seen it in the farm, it lasts a while, very frantic, moving around quite a bit. Not a a lot of direction, not a lot of order to life. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to live apart from God. And yet, and and so God has brought, you know, that's the result, that's the evidence of the curse. And so Jesus takes that. He takes the judgment upon himself. That's what he's redeeming us from. He's buying us back. He's taking us back from what we've had to face over the nature of our sin before God. So we see this Jesus, Boaz, faced the cost of rejection among his community, marrying a Moabite woman. But Jesus has faced the cost of bearing our sin, our shame, and our guilt. So, so we see faith, hope, and love. So are you, are you thankful? I mean, do you find yourself welling up with gratitude over what he's done? Or are you just consumed with the distractions of the day? Or are you just consumed with what's happening in the next week? I mean, do you give thought to the position of your soul, what he's done for you? And that regardless of what will befall you this week, you have a redeemer. You have one who will provide and protect and and care for you in every way. This is what we have. So let's take a minute now and just uh, before Ray closes us in prayer, think about your faith, how it's revealed. Think about the hope that you have. And is it directed toward Christ and the full redemption that you'll experience? Or is your hope more centered on just deliverance? And it's okay to hope for immediate deliverance on things. But, but the anchor of our hope should be in Christ. And then this love that we ought to have for a redeemer such as Christ. So let's take a minute and silently confess, perhaps pray for wisdom and grace, and then Ray will close us.